Today's episode marks the creation of the Fargo universe. Today we're talking about episode four, Eating the Blame. This is Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. Hello, movie friends. Welcome to Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. I am Scott, and today we're continuing our coverage of Fargo for our bit of a detour into TV territory, though I would say that Fargo is very cinematic, especially being an anthology series. And we're at episode four, Eating the Blame, where we've got some big moments for Stavros and the official beginning of the Fargo shared <laughs> shared cinematic universe. At least that's the thing that I'm going to try to make happen. Uh, so without any further ado, let's get started. Up until this point, Fargo has maintained a lot of elements from the show. The location, characters, and tone are all inspired by the Coen's 1996 film, and the show projects a similar moral framework. But there hasn't been any hard connections to the film. No overlapping events or characters, just vibes. That is until today's episode, when Stavros runs right into a key element from the movie. The episode opens in 1987, as Stavros is trekking to Minnesota with his wife and young son. And no one seems happy about it, especially once the car breaks down. With no one coming to their aid, Stavros asks for a sign, asks for a sign from God and notices an ice scraper by the nearby fence and discovers a briefcase full of money, nearly $1 million to be exact. Taking this as a sign that God exists, Stavros returns to his car and presumably starts up his grocery empire. With this in mind, we get to John Chump, who is posing as a plumber and checking out Stavros's water for any added blood. He claims there's nothing wrong with it and makes a lot of not-so-subtle allusions to biblical plagues. Stavros freaks out on him and Don runs out. Back in Duluth, Gus is called out for another animal control job, Stavros's dead dog, and runs headfirst into Malvo. Immediately recognizing him, Gus awkwardly brings Malvo in, while Malvo makes some pointed remarks about how he'll be out soon. Gus calls Molly once Malvo's brought in, and just as she's discovered, Lester's call to Malvo's hotel, connecting the two. And she soon discovers a lot of f damning physical evidence as well. But Chief Oswald goes in her stead. Once in custody, Malvo pretends to be a local minister, makes a call home to his wife, which is actually Don in a pet store, and gets away without incident, much to Gus's chagrin, who even repeats the line that Malvo predicted he would. There's gotta be some mistake. Malvo then leaves and sets another plague upon Stavros, locusts, and causes Stavros to say once again, God exists. Meanwhile, Lester is stalked and eventually captured by Mr. Wrench and Mr. Numbers, but eludes them thanks to a taser and deciding to punch a cop. A decision that only works for a brief moment as Wrench and Numbers fake a bar fight and get thrown in the drunk tank with Lester. So let's start with the Fargo stuff. Hey, a direct connection to the original movie. We've got a Fargo-verse. Said direct connection is the money Stavros finds on the side of the highway. In the movie, this is the money meant to pay the ransom that Steve Buscemi hides for safekeeping. Unfortunately for him and the lonely money, he ended up in a wood chipper, so that money wasn't found. Until Stavros needed a sign from God. We'll get more into this in a second, but this is a great easter egg that's perfectly woven together with one of our characters. Now let's move on to the title. Today's title is Eating the Blame, taken from a Zen Buddhist teaching of the same name. 
In the story, a cook at a monastery mistakenly chops up a snake along with his vegetables and adds it to a soup, which is a no-no for, vegeta for vegetarian monks. When the head monk notices the snake head and hands it to the cook, the cook says thank you and quickly eats the snake head. There's a lot of lessons and interpretations in there, but the main one I've found is that it's better to face things head on and quickly adapt versus defect deflecting blame. One example I found described a wedding where there was a chair shortage, and instead of blaming the chair company, the folks running the wedding worked out a chair share system. And that makes perfect sense for this episode, because there's a lot of people either trying to face their mistakes, adapt to solve problems, or face things head on. Our first example is Gus Grimley, who is determined by now to take down Malvo and redeem himself. Granted, that doesn't seem likely, since he's the cop they send to operate his animal control. But lo and behold, there's Malvo, just sitting there in the open. And he very awkwardly decides to confront him and take him in. This is an endearingly awkward bit as he cuffs and puts Malvo in the car. And we can also tell Malvo isn't worried. And that's worrying. He even taunts Grimly in the car that by the day's end is gonna, he's gonna say there must be some mistake. Because Malvo knows his best solution is to face his problem head on. And it's here we get to see how good Malvo is at wearing different human suits. Billy Bob Thornton's performance here as the supposedly befuddled minister who's really chill about being taken in is fantastic because there are so many layers to it. On the one hand, he's really selling this innocent small town persona. On the other hand, it feels like a mockery of the people he's in front of at the same time. Like, these rubes will buy it if I look and speak like them. And of course, he gives Gus some cryptic riddle to answer before transforming himself back into himself in the van with Don. Back in Bemidji, Lester is doing his best to adapt and go about his business with Wrench and Numbers taunting him in on his trail. And it's here that Lester starts to act more like a savvy criminal. He grabs a taser for self-defense, abandons a call to his brother to get help, knowing it would implicate him, gets free by using said taser, and punches a cop to get put in what he assumes would be protective custody. He's a long way from the guy freaking out on the phone to Malvo. He even reverses that same decision when he calls his brother. Oh, and that wound on his hand is still there and getting worse because he still has a conscience, kinda, and it's threatening to destroy his hand. Unfortunately for him, wrench and numbers adapt as well. What I find interesting is that these are the only bad people in the show that seem to learn from their mistakes and want to do their job, and only their job. Wrench insists that they question Lester to make sure he did it, because they don't want to kill an innocent guy again, and Numbers agrees to it, despite the sibling-esque bickering in Lou's diner, which I was a big fan of. I love this because it tells us so much about how much history they have together, and it comes across as one-sided because Wrench doesn't speak out loud, but you can tell there's a lot being exchanged. And when their first plan goes to hell, they adapt and stage a bar brawl to end up in the same cell as Lester, who thought he won. You have to keep adapting, friend, and you can either do it in a hilarious fashion, that's even better. The show is never above a great background sight gag deep in the frame. Let's move on to the plagues. In the last breakdown, I riffed on the idea that too much faith or a search for meaning can make human beings susceptible to conspiracies or illogical reasoning. But this episode irons out an important question. What made Stavros so faithful in the first place? There's a lot of business people who define themselves as Christian men, but they don't put stained glass windows worthy of a cathedral in their office. But this episode's prologue fills in the blanks. Stavros and his family seem destined to die on the side of the road, and he asks God for help, 
Lo and behold, a suitcase with nearly a million dollars in it showed up. It literally gave him belief in God. And I'll admit, it's hard to blame him. Sadly, it also means he's primed to believe he's suffering from God's wrath as well. The reason why Malvo is doing this is pretty clear. He sees Stavros's faith as a weakness, and an easy way to toy with him or make him do something stupid. But it is notable that he's chosen Old Testament punishments for Stavros. Like Stavros is experiencing Exodus in reverse. He got deliverance, and now he's getting the plagues. And of course, Malvo drifts towards Old Testament. That's where that's the half where God destroys cities for acting out. The smiting is Malvo's bag. For Stavros, this is proof that he's messed up. Somehow he's angry with a god who bailed him out in his hour of need, and he's taking it out on his home and business. The Lord will seemingly not be denied. But what does God want? We'll have to wait and see. And then, Molly. Because Molly is the best. As much as I think we should view every media portrayal of police with suspicion and a critical lens, Molly is exactly the kind of detective and cop we'd want. She is dedicated to justice and relentlessly pursues every lead and piece of evidence. What's impressive is just how much she's pieced together. By this episode's end, she's got a solid new reason to talk to Lester and a reason to cast suspicion on Lorne Malvo. And again, we've got a twist of the knife because Chief Oswald goes in her stead to question Malvo. Not only is this awful just because the Gus-Molly pairing is never not adorable, but also because Molly is the kind of person Malvo can't push around or fool. You get the impression that her and Gus working the interview could send things in another direction. Hell, Molly figures out Gus's riddle in a split second. But Gus's chief and Chief Oswald's concern with image and easy answers prevails once again. Granted, that's not going to stop her, and she's primed to talk to Lester again. But she might need to hurry, because even though Lester is in custody, Mr. Wrench and Mr. Numbers look ready for an intense interrogation of their own. So we have to wait and see if she gets to him in time. And finally, we get to Predator versus Prey. We haven't talked about this in depth yet, but Lauren Malvo makes a lot of references to animals. Evolution, predators, and prey. It's the closest thing he has to a worldview. A kind of violent social Darwinism that respects strength and preys on weakness. The only law is kill or be killed. That's it. What's interesting here is how a guy who describes himself as a wolf, or talks about wolves all the time, is released from custody by playing a shepherd, a minister with a dedicated flock of sheep. This might sound like a stretch, but I don't think it is. And what's so frustrating is that only Gus seems to recognize what Malvo is, even if he can't put a finger on it yet. His superiors can't smell danger two inches from their face, but Gus knows what Malvo is, even if he's shocked by it. And Malvo basically tells him by giving him a riddle. Why can humans see more shades of green than any other animal? Molly knows the answer right away. It helped humans spot predators. I looked around online, and the various interpretations here are interesting. Some people take the riddle to mean that only smart or evolved people can spot what Malvo is, despite his human camouflage, due to their keen instincts or ability to spot predators. Other people interpret this to mean that humans are predators whose eyes adapted to find prey. I lean towards the first interpretation, because once you know what Malvo is, you know there's only one way to stop him. Speaking of predators and prey, I also saw reviews suggesting that this could be Lester's turning point from the prey that lashed out and fought back to an actual predator. It's pretty clear that these reviews weren't retrospective, though, because what comes next is, in my mind, Lester's full turn. But fighting back and even punching a cop is the most direct and forceful series of actions we've seen Lester do to this point. 
It's a stepping stone to the sociopath he'll become, provided he survives the professional hunters and predators who just arrived in his cell, because he is still, at this point, prey. And then we get to just a few bits I like. I like how Glenn Howerton's tan face is such an oddity in this show, you'd think Stavros would find it suspicious for a plumber, and yet he doesn't. I love how the hotel owner and her worker gloss over the pee in the gas can incident. Uh, Chaz, Chaz, which is Lester's brother, watching porn in his gun basement is the best subtle encapsulation of American gun culture I've seen in a long time. Also, remember this frozen lake for later. And I do wish there were more visual indicators for Stavros being on Adderall. They did, there are some visual flourishes that later episodes do I wish they went with in this case. Also, Martin Freeman's face when numbers and rent shows up, mwah, priceless. So that's it for today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed the breakdown and I'll catch you next time. This has been Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie World. Thank you so much for listening. Catch you next time, everybody. Stay safe.